Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. It's an interesting story. It's a long, interesting story about how God got me moved down here. <clears throat> but relax, because I'm not going to tell that story. It's It's... <laughs> It's interesting because God was involved with it. It's long because I was involved with it. <laughs> and I think sometimes, um, think about what it is for, for God. I'll, I'll just give you this much of it. I wanted to move down here to South Carolina. Oh, actually, let me correct that to the southeast there were other places i had my in my mind i had my you know sort of i picked them out and i had a big plan i was going to come down here um and i was trying to work my plan and my plan was not working very well uh and when i was in indiana i was uh, i had been an electrician am i in a can i move around here okay okay um i had been an electrician that work sort of died down to nothing. It was back in the 80s. It was, you know, uh, there just wasn't any work to have. So I became a property manager, worked at a, at a couple of properties for a while. And then the, uh, I, I was pretty much done with that because I had plans to move down here. Okay, so um, the president of the property association of the of the biggest town near where I lived, uh, was trying to get me involved in taking on the management of a property, to of being hired by by a property uh, company, and I wasn't interested in it at all, because context is everything, right? And in my context, I had a plan for my life. I know God says, "Yeah, I have a plan for you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've got a plan, right? <laughs> So this, it didn't fit my plan. And the reason why it didn't fit it, and I, I, there, there was this back and forth between me and the president of the property association for months at least, for a very long time. They kept, they kept saying, please, we think you're the guy for this job. Well, I had a couple of reasons why I didn't want it. One, it was, a, it was, a, it was not a nice property. It was in a bad section of town. It was financially troubled. There was all kind of reasons logically that I wouldn't want to do it um, but the bigger reason was I was looking for a way to get moved down here and the owner the the company was uh, uh, the owner of the company and the place where the company was was uh, situated was just a small it was just a small company that just wasn't going to do me anything if I was if I was going to stay in the property management business there were larger companies that had properties all up and down the East Coast and properties that I could start with this company and then move, make my move with this. That was my plan. Just was totally logical, flawless planning. Okay? <clears throat> and, you know, I'm trying to keep the long story from... I'm trying actually to not tell the story, but I need to tell at least this much of it. So, um, so I actually did... Uh, start with one of those companies, it turned out to be the worst company I've ever worked for. And I'll just 
you'll just have to trust me about it. I won't tell you the reasons why. But, it, but I quit that company. Then for, It was the first time I've ever quit a job in my life that I didn't have another job. And, of course, when I quit this job, the president of the apartment association finds out I'm out there freewheeling and, of course, approached me again. And why can't you just take this other property? And, but the, you know, they, they just didn't realize my context was it's too small. It's not going to get me where I want to be. But finally, I relented. And it was, if you could have seen it, it was, it was funny. I interviewed with the people who owned the property and purposely made it the worst interview of my life. I, I mean, I didn't want this job. And they would say, how, how long have you been a property manager? And I would just answer, you know, I don't know, you know, a few years, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> what, are you, what are your goals? Tell, tell us a little bit something about your goals. No goals. I'm just, you know, I'm <laughs> I was trying so bad to throw this thing. And at the end of the thing, the, the owner looked at me and said, well, I think you're our man. <laughs> so I said I, I agreed to start working for them, worked with them for a very short period of time, <laughs> and then found out that the owner of the company found out, you know, because of some conversations I was having with some other people that I actually wanted to relocate to the southeast. And coincidentally, he was buying into a management portfolio in Greenville, South Carolina. This company that could take me nowhere was taking me exactly where I wanted to go. Then the thing is, I had a context, right? I'm making my decisions within this context. Let's not get outside of my context. But what I didn't realize was that God had a context that took my context in. And in fact, my context was part of his context. It was he that had put the desire in me in the first place to get moved down here. But until I could just say, okay, listen to God, at least consider the possibility that God is somehow working in my life, it became a very long, uncomfortable story. Okay? And, and you know, th that happens all the time. I swear it must be, if, if you're God, what we have here <laughs> is a failure to communicate. <laughs> but, but beyond that, we have a clash of sovereigns because God is sovereign and He has plans and He's eventually going to bring His all his, his overall plan around to perfection. But he has to deal with all of us and our plans because he's given us sovereignty over our own life as well. So it's a clash of sovereignty. And I swear it must be like herding cats to, to get, for God to get people in the place to carry out his plan. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, I'm doing this. And then the guy that you think is going to do that goes over this way, and God still brings it around. It's amazing. It's amazing. So when we, when we think about our context, we always have to think about what, what God's, con God's context is. 
And um, so what I want to talk about this morning, last week Roy mentioned, he talked about the, the crossing the Red Sea, the children of Israel, the Red Sea parts, they go across. They didn't realize it at the time. There were reasons why God was doing that for them, but they didn't realize at the time the greater context of, of what was going on. The Bible says, I'm quote a couple of verses here. Uh, John 5.39 says, You search the Scripture. This is Jesus talking to the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it, it is these that bear witness of me. You have eternal life standing in front of you, talking to you, and you're arguing with me according to the scriptures that point to me. And it, you know, it, it must, I mean, again, if I'm God, you're all in trouble. Because <laughs> I don't know how he puts up with this stuff. Colossians 2.17 said, these things, talking about the stories, the, the rituals, the ceremonies, the traditions, he said, it's all a mere shadow of what's to come. But the substance is Christ. So we're sitting in a room and we see a door open and we see a shadow come in. We know that because we see the shadow coming that there's something that the shadow is attached to that's the substance, that's the real thing. That's the real reason for, for everything that happened. And when you study the Old Testament, it brings context to the New Testament. But the New Testament also brings context in a larger sense to all that stuff in the Old Testament. So, so you know, again, we're looking at the Old Testament, and, and when I think of the context of the children of Israel crossing that, uh, uh, the Red Sea and the miracle that took place, it's, it, we, we know that from their perspective, God's just showing them something cool so that they will trust him, right? He, he brought them out of, the, out, of, out of Egypt and all the plagues that he did on their behalf, and now all of a sudden, the Egyptians are behind, the sea is in front of us. God's going to show you something really cool. And so Moses, God's spokesman, says, here's the deal. Sit down, shut up, and watch. That's all you got to do, and watch what God does, because he's going to bring salvation. Use that term, salvation. 1 Corinthians 10 said, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Moses is a type of Christ. That's the larger context, what the children of Israel didn't get. Because from the very beginning, if you go clear back to God speaking to Abraham, he takes him to what is to be the promised land, this is the place that you're to be. This is where I want you to be. Ain't happening yet because you're going to spend about 400 years in a land that's not your land. It's not yours. There was context. There was reason for that. They didn't know it. They didn't get it. Abraham didn't get it at all. Abraham believed this was the place. This is where God wants me. And he so stuck to that place that when it came time to find a wife for his son, he sent, because of his wife, griping, you know, that wanted, didn't want the son marrying somebody from here, wanted to, you know, send, send for some cousin back home to marry him. So 
he sent his servant up there to find a, uh, a bride for his son. That sort of attitude of I'm staying in the promised land began to diminish as the generations went until finally, you know, you have you know, the story of, of, uh, of Jacob who goes out of the promised land to go find his own wife. And you know that the trouble that he, he, that he went into living under bondage with, with Laban and, and working all those years for first the wrong wife and the right wife and, and all this kind of thing. And then, you know, again, the story goes on. Remember, this, this, is, this is the promised land. It's where God wanted them to be. Then came the famine in the land. You know the story that Joseph <clears throat> took the whole family and put them in the land of Goshen. And it was, it was a good place. There was, he, was, he was friendship with the Pharaoh that lived there. Okay? And it was great. And it was blessing. And if I, I, I believe that I could make the case that God wanted them there, but he didn't want them to stay there. That was never gonna, supposed to be. He knew they were going to stay there, but it wasn't where he wanted them to be. But it was comfortable. It was a good land. It was developed. It was for them. They had the Pharaoh and all this kind of thing. But then there was a Pharaoh that came along that didn't know Joseph, right? And what did he, what did he think of the children of Israel? He hated them and he feared them. What does that remind you of? Adam was put in a garden. God's favored person created a place, a wonderful place, said, this is your promised land right here. But then you had an enemy in the land who didn't know God and didn't know Adam, or he did know them, but, but he saw Adam as a threat. And so he, he began to work Adam. Adam came under bondage to this enemy, and he began to build his own kingdom not with his own authority. Not Satan had no authority on the earth. He used Adam's authority. And that's what happened with the children of Israel. The, the Pharaoh saw them. He saw the power. He saw the strength. He saw the, the, you know, who they were. But he used them, put them into bondage to start building his own kingdom in Egypt. And then came a time when God says, it's time for you to go out of this place and, and find the promised land that you were always supposed to be in. What was the verse you said again? Because I thought about it when uh, it says, I, I forget how you said it. The fine, yeah. Because I, I thought it fit right in. Return to the stronghold of hope. Here you have slaves in a hopeless situation, but they were, they were supposed to be there. They were supposed to return. How is God going to get them there? Okay, so that's what, that was the background of all of the, you know, leading the children of Israel through. But what they didn't realize, what they were, God was creating a picture then for us now. Um, let me, there's another verse that, I don't know if I could find it right now. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example. Everything that happened was teaching us something, to, to instruct us something. They didn't realize that. They just see it as in the context of their own life and what they're doing and their, their hardships and following this and doing that. But God has a greater context. Okay, so the context is Egypt is the world. Egypt is bondage. The world is bondage, but we're never supposed to live in bondage. There was to be a redeemer that was to lead us out of Egypt. 
in an amazing way. You know, it was, an, it was amazing to go through those waters, and, and it's, it just said here that, the, that when they passed through those waters, that was their baptism. Because they entered those waters as slaves and came out as a nation. So that was their baptism into Moses. And it's a picture of what we are. Everybody in this room, I don't know everybody in this room, but I can guarantee you, you are in one of three places. You are either in Egypt, the world, bondage, or you are in the wilderness, or you are in the promised land. And the interesting thing about that is you think there should just be two places. It should either be Egypt or the promised land. What's this deal of this wilderness in between? What's that all about? The wilderness was a place where God was going to teach these people who grew up as slaves how to have God as their king. How to, ha- how to trust and obey God. And how God, if they did that, that was the covenant was, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you. But he, it, says, it, it says that he could have taken him directly from Egypt right into Canaan. But he didn't do it because he knew there were giants in that land. And he knew that if, if they encountered those giants, they would just scatter. They, they, just, they, you know, they would be all over the place. God had to teach them something first. He had to take them from this place to this place before they were ready to go into the promised land. And what's the place? The New Testament talks about it. Galatians says, as long as the, as the heir, the one who owns the promised land, as long as he's a child, he's no different than the slave, the guy that's still in Egypt, the guy that's in bondage. He's no different. And they proved that because God provided for them. He gave them manna and he, gave the, he did all this stuff for them. And yet, what did they do? All they wanted to do was, let's go back to the world. Let's go back to Egypt. At least there, you know, are there no graves in Egypt? Is there no leeks and garlics and all the wonderful things? They started picturing this great time that they had, but they forgot that God took them out of Egypt, and even after he took them out of Egypt, Egypt pursued them. When he left, when when they left Egypt on their way to the promised land, the world was coming after them, saying, you're not getting away that easy. But God took care of that for them. That's what this whole big thing about crossing the Red Sea is. But, and then in this period of time, how long did they have to stay in the wilderness? 40 years? How long did they have to stay in the wilderness? How long did it take for you to walk from Egypt to Canaan? Not very long. Not very long. It was an interesting story because God was involved. It was a long story because they were involved. And, and too many times, that's, that's, you know, we just cry out to God and God's crying out to us. Amen. Listen to me. Grow. Become the man. Become the Son of God. I make a clear distinction in the verses that I read in the New Testament between the children, God's children, the children of God, and the sons of God. Because when the, the, this town, this county, this country, this world is filthy with children of God. There are children of God. You can't throw a rock without hitting a child of God. 
I don't recommend you do that necessarily. <laughs> but how many sons are there? How many sons? Because what does that mean to be a son? When you're a child, you can make messes because somebody's got to clean it up, right? You don't have to take responsibility because somebody else is responsible. You don't have to learn anything. You, don't, you resist everything that, that gives you stature and position because somebody else is supposed to do that for me. That's a child. That's what a child is. And so much of what Paul writes in the New Testament is almost insulting. He says it really nicely. But what he's saying, his message is, grow up. Grow up. Become the son. I, I, I remember having, a, I have a picture in my mind when I was in one of those property management places, uh, Amy would bring the kids and very small, Jeremy would be sitting in my big office chair, swiveling around, you know, kicking the things and just, you know, spinning around and around and around. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, I hope he doesn't mess anything up. You know, that was my big, just don't, just don't dump any papers or whatever. I, I, and, I, and I have that picture now and I'm thinking, as a child, I would never give him any responsibility. But as a grown-up, you hope that they grow into the stature of this person who's not only there and not getting in trouble, but is going to take charge of your, of your company business, of the farm, of, the, of whatever it is. He's the grown-up son. He's now the guy that's, that's you know, you know he's, he's not just uh, this little child playing in the field. He's the guy saying, I'm going to plant this in this field, and I'm going to, this is the time for this harvest. And he's taking charge, and he's being what God wants him to be. And he's the guy in our context that's going to, going to pro, uh, progress the kingdom around us because it's not going to be somebody else doing it. we got to do it. And when we do it, when we finally get to that place, God said when they were in the, in the wilderness, he told them when they were getting ready to leave, he said, the reason why that I fed you manna, the reason why I tested you like this was to do really good for you in the end. It's going to be awesome. It's really going to be good. This thing that you've been living, this wilderness experience that you've been living, I guarantee you is not the promised land. That's not the end. There's something far greater, and it's on the other side of that river. So you're going to have to... So, and, and, you know, there was a whole generation of people that he tried to teach them, and he brought them to the, to the verge, to, the, to the, you know, the borderline of the promised land, and he said, <clears throat> by the way, just so you know, there's giants in there. I've sent some spies in there to check them out. Only two people got it. Only two people learned the trust and obedience that that whole trip was all about. And when, you, when these guys said, when, clear back in the, the time when they were, um, as they were crossing the Red Sea, Moses said to them, those Egyptians that you see today, you will never see them again. Was he just talking about those Egyptians and the army that were drowned? He's talking about the ones he'd seen earlier as they left. He's talking about none of Egypt. You're not going to experience you don't have an option to go back to Egypt. That was what the golden calf was about. That was what all the grumbling was about. They wanted to go back. And in our life, that picture that we have, when you become a Christian, 
you don't have an option to say, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm not part of this covenant deal anymore. But you do have an option to say, I want what that world has. I don't want to let go of that. And what does that bring you? What does that do for you? Wilderness. It's just wilderness. So you're living a Christian, great, but your life is miserable because you're trying to live you're trying to live a promised land existence in a wilderness by the actions of, of Egypt. And it will never, ever work. It's just, it, trust me, it won't work. Okay, so they get to this place, that whole generation dies in the wilderness. Another generation comes up, and they, they get to this place. The threshold of the, of the Jordan River and they're to cross this thing. Okay, now what does the what does the crossing of the Jordan River signify? I'm a teacher, so I always ask questions. So if anybody, <laughs> anybody, anybody, what does that mean when they cross the Jordan? You know, it went from Egypt into the into the wilderness. What was so? What's the what's the big deal crossing the Jordan? Why did they cross? Have to cross something again? Go into the Promised Land. That's in, in the promised land. This is an interesting thing. If you, if you look at um, Joshua chapter 1, I didn't, I didn't tell you this one much, so you don't have to put it up. But <clears throat> when Joshua uh, is, is talking to Moses about crossing the Jordan, he said, uh, uh, every place on, this, uh, on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. He gave it to him because he'd given it to Abraham. It was already theirs, okay? Just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Okay, what does that tell me? When they're standing on the east bank of the Jordan River, and they're standing there looking at this water, and they say, you're going to cross this thing, is the promised land geographically, physically, on the other side of the river? They're standing in the promised land. Their promised land was a lot bigger than what we're picturing when we see this little strip of land called Israel today. Their promised land extended all the way to the Euphrates River. They were standing in their promised land. They were already there. But there was something in God's context a reason why he wanted them to make this crossing. Okay, so he tells them, I'm going to start reading here in Joshua chapter 3. I think that's where I want to start reading. Okay, it says, says, uh, uh, verse 1, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, he and the sons of and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits of measure. Do not come near it, that you may know uh, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Okay, 
And then verse 5 says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, cross the head of the people. So they took up the Ark and went to the head of the people. Let me just stop it right there. Well, let me just one more verse. <laughs> and the Lord said to, to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Okay. So from the people's perspective, when they crossed the Jordan, uh, they were entering the promised land. God's, uh, you, you back up a little bit and get a little bit of the, the, the larger context. He speaks to Joshua uh, individually and says, I'm doing this because I'm going to exalt you in their eyes so that they, they're, they're going to obey you because they know that I'm with you. So there was that context. Another context you don't get until a couple of chapters later is when they cross the Jordan, just the event, that thing of crossing the Jordan, put fear in the hearts of the people in the land of Canaan. They, they feared them. These were guys, if you look in the historical uh, writings of, of, the, of the children of Israel, they were known as the shepherd kings, a bunch of shepherds. And these are guys in walled cities, giants, and armed to the teeth, and, and chariots, and all this stuff feared these guys because they knew something about God. Okay, so that's that greater context. But in the context of the children of Israel, if you tell them, and they've heard the stories that their parents have told them about how awesome it was when we walked through that, the, the, the water just parted like this, and there was a wall of water here and a wall of water there, and we walked through here, and we just saw the fish swimming around like the, like, it was like uh, uh, Ripley's, aquarium thing you know you walk through that tunnel you just i mean it, it just was so awesome and the stories of the plagues and all this kind of stuff these kids grew up hearing this and now this is the picture that they have in my, their mind because joshua says get ready because god's going to do something awesome you're going to see it's going to be awesome what god does so what picture is in their mind what picture is in their mind the, the crossing of the Red Sea. All those stories. They're going to see this thing. The, the, the Jordan River at that time was at flood stage. If it wasn't at flood stage, you could have waded across. But it was at flood stage. It was high. And when a river is at flood stage, the thing that makes that different than a, than a, a body of water that's just still is there's movement. And, and if you've ever been around a river that's at flood stage... There's fast movement. It's rushing, gushing movement. And they knew that it was flood stage because I think that was probably the reason why they, they stayed for three days. They set up this camp there and then they sent their scouts ahead to see what's up, to scout out the land, see which, what, where we're going to go here. <clears throat> so they're thinking, going to be just like the other time. We're just going to see these walls just go up, walls of water, we're going to walk through. It's going to be awesome. Okay. That's what, the, that's what their parents saw. But their parents, remember, in the context of what God's showing us, these are people coming out of the world who know nothing of God. The only thing they know is, believe me, stand still and watch salvation. From that point on, God begins to work in the life of a Christian. And a Christian should be able to learn something else, to know something else about God, to learn to trust and obey God, to hear the voice of God, and to obey it. That's where they're at at this crossing now. 
So what did they see? Okay. Uh, let's see, how far have I read? Uh, verse 7, okay, I'm going to ex- exalt you. So, <clears throat> let's see. I'm trying to skip through some of this, okay. I'm taking so much time skipping through, I might as well just read it, but... <laughs> Okay, behold, verse 11, let's start there. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of of, uh, all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And it shall come about that when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rests in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. It's going to be so cool. That's going to be so cool to see this, this, the things that our parents saw. So when they set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan had overflowed all its banks, the waters which were flowing down from above stood up and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside uh, Zerubbabel, Zerathon, I think, and those who were uh, those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho, and the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Okay. So here's the question: expectations context, what they're thinking they're going to see, what did they really see when they got there? What did they see? What miracle did the children of Israel see? Did they see water standing up? In, in the case of the flowing river, in the, you know, if, if you have the ocean, you just have the water just sort of holding up like this. In the flowing river, you just turn the, you turn the, the spigot off up here and the water flows up by, and then there's nothing there. So, so here's what they actually saw, and this is, this is interesting to me. When it said, <clears throat> when uh, Joshua had told him, when you see the ark, way back in uh, chapter 3, verse um, 3, when you see the ark of the covenant, then follow it, Okay? And you get to stay back a distance of three two thousand cubits from the ark. Okay, so what this? If you think about the camp of the Israelites, there were probably two million, anywhere from two to three million people, at least. Okay, so the camp of two million people or three million people is how big? It's a mile square at least. It's much bigger than that actually. You can, I mean, if they, if it was a mile square. Three million people are are just almost shoulder to shoulder marching. It's that many people, so it was a much bigger thing. And what they did with the Ark of the Covenant was they started at one end and marched that thing through the whole children of Israel, marched it past all of them, so they could see it and get up. They had their everything was all packed up, ready to go, and this thing marched through. So it went at least a mile between, you know, from one end of their camp to the other, and then took off. And they all stood up as they watched this thing go by. They all saw this ark. 
And so they start, watch, they start to follow, but they can't follow immediately. How far behind are they supposed to keep? What kind of a distance between the two? 2,000 cubits. You know, 2,000 cubits is? Okay, I did the math. I took the, there are a couple of different measurements of a cubit. I took the, the least measurement is 18 inches. So you take 18 inches times 2,000 cubits, it's 36,000 inches. Divide by 36 inches in a yard, you get 1,000 yards. Can you picture 1,000 yards? How long is a football field? 100 yards. So picture a football field, and then nine more after that. That's how far back they had to stay from the ark. It's, it's roughly six-tenths of a mile. It's basically, if you know where, um, do you know where Cornerstone is up here? So if you stood out here by our sign up there, and the Ark of the Covenant is up by Cornerstone on, on, on East Lee Road up there, how much of that are you going to be seeing? What are you, you going to see any action going on up there? You're going to see the, the priests dip their feet in the water you're going to see the waters fold back up here. What are you going to see? You're not going to see anything. By the time they got up there, all they saw was the guys holding this thing, standing in the middle of the, of the, of the riverbed on dry ground. That's the miracle they saw. It wasn't the shock and awe that their father saw. Why? What's the difference? Now God's saying, I'm working. You don't have to see what I'm doing. You've got to trust me. You've got to obey me. I'm working. Okay? Difference. There's a real difference in this context. Okay. So, <clears throat> all right. So then, let's see. The other thing is about, <laughs> about this is where the water was piled up. Because you might think, okay, well, yeah, so I didn't, we didn't see the water go back. But we'd see the water piled up on this side, and the other side just flowed on down, right? We ought to see the water, at least see that much, see some water piled up. Okay, it says in verse 16 of chapter, whatever that was, what are we on, 3? It says, the water which were flowing down from above stood and rose up one, uh, in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city, and it tells where this is. Okay, put that picture up there showing the city of Adam. It's really hard to find a picture showing the city of Adam, but you can see it right there, okay? Strange name for a town. But you could see, if you, if you could look up further on the map there, I actually had, you know what? There's like six words on there, but in case you can't find Adam, it's right here. <laughs> All right, so that, everybody with me now? Okay. All right. Why, why not just, up above there is the Sea of Galilee. You can't see that. Why not just stop it right there? Why did all of a sudden that Adam had just piled up? Okay, so keep that in mind for a second. Ponder that one. But also ponder this. If you, do the, if you look at how the distance between the Jericho crossing there and Adam is, that is 16 miles. That's 16 miles away. If you, if you 
come out of the sign up here and you start and and you think of Wade Hampton as the Jordan River and you start going up this way. Uh, you go past Taylor's, you go past Greer, past Duncan, past Lyman, past Welford, and you'll see the intersection of Highway or Interstate 85 crossing way up there. That's 16 miles from here. How much of that water piled up are you going to see? You ain't seeing nothing. <laughs> God said, I'm going to do an amazing thing for you guys tomorrow. Get ready. And what do they see? A bunch of guys in sandals holding a box on, on some dry ground. That's what they see. <laughs> That's their miracle. It was a miracle, but they didn't see it because God says, you don't have to see it because I've taken you to a place. The reason you're crossing this place is because you've come to a place where you've got to just trust me and obey me. And I'm not showing you anything. But the one thing that he did tell them to look at was what? What were, what were they supposed to actually instructed? Look at this. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. He says, I'm going to take this thing past you guys, and then you, when you see it pass, you line up, you wait your turn, and you follow this thing. And you keep your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant, and when you get to the edge of the water, it's all, or the edge that's now dry land, you just continue on and you just make your way up. And everybody in that whole uh, uh, nation of two million people marched past the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of that river. Okay. And that's what they saw. What's the greater context of that? What was that all about? Okay, so if you, if you, if you think, okay, first of all, think of these poor guys carrying this thing. The Ark of the Covenant was, it was a big wooden box. It was acacia wood uh, overlaid with gold. Then you had, on top of that, you had what was called the mercy seat, solid gold. And on top of that, you had these carvings of, of, uh, of angels, the cherubim, solid gold. And then you had, you had uh, gold rings and bars that were wooden uh, uh, encased in gold. And then you had, inside of this thing, two tablets of stone. How much do you think that thing weighed? It, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I try and do a little research. Nobody knows, because nobody knows where it is. It's not something that is it's ever told to us how much it weighs. But just people trying to put, this, put things together, they think it was probably... Uh, you know, it's all different numbers, but probably around 615 to 50 pounds. You know, that's, that's sort of, it's a general idea. That meant that there was probably 150 pounds a piece that the guys were, were holding, okay? Not a big deal. I mean, who, what grown man couldn't hold up 150 pounds, right? So how long did they have to hold it? They marched from one end of the camp to the other, over a mile, then they marched at least a half a mile to the river. It was probably further than that. They marched at least that far, went into the river, and then waited for all these guys to march on through and to just keep on going like this. That was a long time. And they, they still weren't done. I'll tell you in a minute, they weren't finished. When the children of Israel moved off and were out of the, out of the river, 
It wasn't time. They still had to stay there for a minute because something else is going to happen. I'll tell you in a minute. But what was inside of that box? Okay, we talked about the box, this big old top-heavy, you know, heavy box that they're carrying that's so significant that every place they were going to go before, they took this Ark of the Covenant and they were victorious in battle and God provided and God's presence were there and all this stuff. What's inside of that box? Does anybody know? What? The Ten Commandments, that was one of the things. If you, if you want to uh, see a reference, it's um, Hebrews. You guys all know this stuff. That's awesome. Okay, yeah, Hebrews 9.4 says, the golden jar with the manna, right? Aaron's staff that budded, Aaron's rod that budded, the tablets of the covenant. Those three items were in there, okay? So what are those things? Why were those things specifically in this? And then along, it, it also, in addition to that, when it talks about the tablets, it was the law. It was the things that Moses was writing at the time were placed in in, uh, in, in there. So, so those things were symbolic of the covenant. Remember what the covenant provision were, uh, the distinctions were? I said, he said, you're going to trust me and obey me, and I'm going to provide and protect. What was manna? Manna was their provision. What was uh, uh, the, the Aaron's rod? What was that rod? What was that? It was protection. And what was the tablets of the covenant and the, the written word, the law, the Torah that was in there? What was that? That represented our obedience, our trust and obedience. These were representation of the covenant. When it said the Ark of the Covenant, that's what it was talking about. This is a representation of the deal I'm making with you guys. Okay. What else did it represent? It goes further. Uh, um, Aaron's rod, if you know the story of, where, of Aaron's rod budding, does anybody know that story? I don't want to come up here and tell it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I won't go into the to that whole thing. But you know, basically, there's a disturbance, there, uh, a discussion among the the Levites that said, "Who you know, you guys think you're all that Moses and, and Aaron and you're blah, blah blah. You know, we're just as important as you guys are." So there was some death that took place as a result of that, and a plague came, and, and ironically, the plague only stopped when Aaron made a sacrifice to God, and the plague went away. And then God says, I want, I want you to everybody take one of the rods, <clears throat> a rod from each of your 12 tribes, put it in this thing, and I'll just tell you who I think is, is supposed to be in charge. So his rod bu- uh, butted. It was, it was symbolic of guidance and leadership. He was... He was supposed to be um, God's leader. Okay, so the tablets, of course, that was the word of God, truth, it was wisdom. So all these things, that, you know, in the New Testament, uh, it says Jesus has become, for us, the wisdom of God. We have the mind of Christ. That when in the Old Testament, it was God's uh, speaking to Moses, the word of God, it was, that, it was that wisdom. So it represents that. The jar with the manna is real interesting. It was a golden jar filled with manna. Now, what was the characteristics of manna? What, what, is, what do we know about manna? It, I heard a... Yeah, it, it's rots, okay? It's very perishable. Manna just... It's, it's got a terrible shelf life, okay? It's, it was probably gluten-free. 
It's probably heirloom. It's probably free range. It's probably really good for you, but it rots really fast. Okay, nothing more perishable than manna. Okay, what about gold? What do we know about gold? Does gold rot? Does it rust? Does it deteriorate at all? No, it's the most imperishable thing that there is. So they took some of this manna that rotted every day, put it in this thing, and as long as it was in this golden thing, the manna never rotted. What's that a picture of? What is 1 Corinthians 15, 53? For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal put on immortality. Colossians 3, uh, 3 says, For you've died with Christ, and you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's us in this thing. That's us. We become imperishable as long as we're in him. Okay? So, so that's the, you know, those are the things that's in there. And you can boil this down even further to three things. Aaron's rod showed the way. The tablets presented the truth. The manna gave life. What did Jesus stand up in the feast and say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Isn't that interesting? All of these things in here represent Jesus. Now, there's something more about that. What was? Let's look. Let's consider the box itself. Let's consider the ark itself. There was. There are actually three, um, three different places in the Bible that talks about arks. Two of them are real obvious. Another one may not be as obvious, but the first one is Noah's ark, right? Okay. And that's, that's in Genesis 6.14. It says, make for yourself an ark. And the word, the Hebrew word for ark is teba, T-E-B-A-H. Just means box, basically. Make yourself a floating box. Then there's a second one uh, in, uh, let's see, Exodus 2.3, talking about Moses. And, and it says, when she could hide him no longer, Moses... She got him a wicker basket. The word basket is that word, T-E-B-A-H. It's basically another ark. She made him a wicker ark. Okay. Both of those stories, man was placed inside of an ark of safety and sealed off. If you look at the, what the word pitch means, and both of those uh, had pitch, it, it has to do with salvation. It has to do with redemption. Pitch is another word that was translated redemption. And it was pitched against the water, which represents judgment. That's what those two pictures were, these arcs. This ark, the Ark of the Covenant, we always, we always translate it ark, but it uses a whole different word with a whole different meaning. <clears throat> that word, I, mean, I have to look it up here because I don't know if I could remember the name of it. Um, talk amongst yourself for a second because I'm looking. <laughs> Where is it? Oh, there, there it is. Okay. The word is that was translated ark in this case was the Hebrew word A-R-O-W-N, Aron. I'm not sure how, how, you, how you pronounce it. It's found in one other place. 
in the Old Testament. And it's in Genesis 50, 26. It talks about, it says, So Joseph died at the age of 110 years old, and he was embalmed and placed in, and there's that word. Do you know what that word is translated to? The word that we would normally call an ark? He was placed in a coffin. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin. So when he says, when they say, make yourself an ark, the ark of the covenant, he's, he, they used the word, make yourself a coffin. That was an Egyptian thing. That the, uh, but but the, the, so the interesting thing is, when you think about this, those guys were carrying around a coffin all through the wilderness and into the promised land. The guys that carried this thing were pallbearers. And what did the coffin contain? They were not carrying a dead body in there. They were carrying death becoming life. It's, it says uh, in first, or 2 Corinthians 4.10, and again, these, I'm giving you the greater context of those things that these guys had no idea about. They, don't, they had no idea what that was a picture of. But in 2 Corinthians 4.10, it says, we are always carrying the death of Jesus. Not the dead Jesus, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. That's what that covenant was about. That's what that Ark of the Covenant, that's why when they walk by there, he says, he says, you keep your eyes on this covenant and walk on by because the place that you're going is a place that you've never been before. And it wasn't talking about geographically, although they hadn't crossed the river yet, but they were talking about in your spirit, that covenant is going to be so strong in you that you're going to make decisions in ways that you've never made before. You're going to fight battles in ways you've never done before. You're going to have your needs met in ways you've never had them met before. Because that's what covenant does. And that's what you guys now are no longer the children grumbling and mumbling in the wilderness. You've now grown up to the stature of being sons. The sons of Israel. And now you're ready to cross into this other place. Isn't that cool? Okay, now let me just, can I go on? A couple more points. Okay, uh, um, so I need to say something else about, um, uh, if I can find it, the, the place, in that picture there, we see Adam, which by the way, that was a weird thing to, to call a town in that place, to call it Adam. But it's just God doing his thing because God was painting a picture. And we don't, most people are, aren't even aware of the picture, but here it is. And what you, what you have here, I, let, me just, let me just, I'm trying to decide whether to go into this, but I'm going to anyway. Because remember, the guys are still standing in the middle holding this thing. And I got I to gotta finish that up for them because they weren't done yet. Because remember the 12 guys? He said, choose for yourself one guy from each of the 12 tribes. That he had a job for them to do before the, the Israelites could, could move on. Do you remember, does anybody remember what that was that they were supposed to do? Some, the stones. What was all that about? Okay. It was a marker 
and it signified the tribes. So here's what he told them to do. Uh, he picked the guys in uh, Joshua chapter 4, verse 3. says, uh, Take up for yourself twelve stones from here, the middle of the Jordan, the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you were lodged tonight. So he called the guys up said, Okay, pick up these stones. And by the way, he said he put them on their shoulders. They weren't just little stones. They were boulders. They were big things that they had to carry. Okay? So they pick up these things, 12 stones, and he says, you're going to put them down where we're lodged tonight. Well, where we're lodging? It's a place called Gilgal. Okay? Gilgal isn't on there, but I'll just uh, uh, I'll tell you something about Gilgal. You, you read that in uh, verse 19. It says, people came up from Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal. Gilgal is a place whose name means circle of stones. And so those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Okay, so how far is it from where Joshua was at the crossing to Gilgal? Six and a half miles. It's like from here to uh, Staples in Greer. So, so these guys are picking up these stones, putting them on there, and they're going to walk six and a half miles to Gilgal and make a nice little circle around there. And he says, if anybody asks, if your children ask why you're doing this, just say it's a, it's a, it's a testament to the crossing here. That's the small context. There's a much larger context that I want to... Uh, 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 share with you. Okay, so so the guys are still standing there in the middle. These guys, now the whole nation is crossed in front of them. They pick up the stones, and then they march for six and a half miles away. And then they come back, and when they get back, what does Joshua tell them to do? Find some more stones out there and make a big circle, a nice big circle, around the the priest standing in the middle of the Jordan. We just moved the stones out of the Jordan and we took them to Gilgal. Now you want me to find some other stones and put them in a circle? What are you even doing? They didn't question it because they're sons. They just did. And they never, I don't think they ever knew what I'm going to share with you. The reason why they put those stones back in there. <clears throat> okay, so, so, if you think about, um, you know, I can find reasons why uh, those stones were significant. It's, it, was a, it was a replacement. The stones that they put there looked just like the other ones. But the, but the old stones had been moved away. And now new stones were put there. The old had been taken away, and now this was the new, Okay. So that's the basic symbol that God's beginning to, to work there. <clears throat> so, all right, let me see. I got my, these, these papers are so messed up up here, if you could see it. Uh, I probably don't need them, actually, but I'm going to use them anyway. Okay. Maybe I didn't put those in there. Okay. So, the old was carried away, and the new was, was put in their place. And, where is that? I'm looking for a particular verse, and I can't find it. Let's see. Hmm. 
All right. I, I'm going to... Okay, anyway, time is ticking away here. Let me just move on from there and just fast forward to the New Testament, okay? 1400, a little over 1400 years later, this is an event that took place. And it's uh, uh, John the Baptist coming to the Jordan. I can't. I want to read it exactly how it is. And, okay, Matthew 3. Okay. Matthew 3 says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, and it tells about who, who uh, Joshua is. And it says, it talk, describes it how Joshua, I mean, how John dressed and all this. Um, but then he, he, he makes this real interesting statement. So he saw the many, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise children to Abraham. What stones? It ta- it, it, in other versions, you try to get an idea where, where John was, his ministry was. It was a whole district around the Jordan. And this, I believe, was a place called Gilgal. It was a place where they saw a circle of stones. And the circle of stones, if you may recognize the name Gilgal, it was the place where when Saul was anointed king, they said, let's go to Gilgal and, make, and anoint him. It was a place where Saul was supposed to meet the prophet, and wait for him there, and he didn't. So it was a place where kingdoms were made and kingdoms were lost in that place. And later on, it became a place, and and talking about the kingdoms of man that man wanted to create. And later it was a place uh, used for pagan sacrifices and offerings. And what it it contained there, the, the rocks that he said consider these rocks because God's able to make rays out of these rocks, children of Abraham. These were the rocks. It was the old rocks that had been carried away. God's doing something new, this baptism that John was talking about. And he says, don't, don't say you can, you know, don't talk to me about the children of Abraham. That's the old thing. And he can bring the old out of these old rocks here. So then the next day, where does John go? He goes to the Jordan to that place, the place of crossing, and he sees Jesus. And Jesus walks out. Can't prove it, what I believed. Jesus walks out in the middle of the Jordan, and he feels around with his feet. He finds these rocks. He's going all around. He finds the 12 stones. He stands in the circle of the center of these stones, and he says to John, I have need to be baptized by you. And John, I mean, John, no, I mean, he's, he wants to be baptized. John, John tried to be baptized. said, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We get to close the context. This I am the ark that was suspended over this exact place 
that brought the children of Israel into that other place. I am that ark. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I need to come, I need to go down and come on. Let me tell you something else. One other thing about the Jordan River. And that was what I was looking for earlier. But Because um, the, there's a word for the Jordan. Oh, I wish I could find that. Uh, it's funny because there's only so many pages that I have up here. I can't think of the name of the word for the Jordan, but what it means is I'll just I'll just make it I'll just make it up. <laughs> That's when all else fails. You just you just gotta make it up. Okay. <laughs> What the, what the word for the Jordan means is descending, okay? It just means descent. And what the picture of this thing is, if you should put that picture back up again, Mati, if you, if you can, you have the descent that began with Adam going down and ending at the Dead Sea. The descent that went from Adam descending down to death was cut in two, when the waters rolled back and the Ark of the Covenant was there and Jesus stood in that very place where he said, this will not be anymore. I have broken the descent. So then what happened to, what happened to Jesus after he gets baptized? It says, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him and the voice from heaven said what? This is not my child. This is my son. This is my son. It was the crossing over to sonship. And what does the Bible say? Romans 8, 14. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What does God want us to be? Children or sons? There needs to be a Jordan crossing in our own life because the wilderness isn't good enough. And most of the church, this is, you know, this is not a, a proud statement. Most of the church, I think, are children of God living in a wilderness, not yet in that promised land, not yet taking charge in the kingdom and making things happen. But that's where God wants us to be. We've crossed the Red Sea. We need to cross the Jordan and get, and get into that place. As long as the heir is a child, he differs not from a slave. What did Jesus do when he got up from there? He went back into the wilderness to be led by the Spirit. That's what you do when you cross the, the Jordan. Okay? So is that, I mean... That is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> you, that's gotta, that is got to be so awesome. It is to me. When I see the old stories and they knew what was going on and they saw this and they understood that and they said, yeah, these stones are for this and that. But in the larger context, it all testifies of who Jesus is and who he is to us. Okay, so not sure how to close this thing out. Nobody played mu- nice music for me or anything. <laughs> Annie. 
<laughs> okay, okay, here it is. <laughs> All right, don't need nice music. But if, if the prayer team wants to come up, when I first started, I said there were, there's three places. You're in one of three places. You're either in Egypt, you're in the wilderness, or you're in the promised land. You, you have to know where that is. And as the prayer team comes up, if you want prayer, if you know you're in the, you're in the world, if you know you're in Egypt, and you need to move across that Red Sea and get into this other place, talk to these guys, talk to me, talk to somebody. If you're in the wilderness and you know God's been speaking to you, and I think there's other things that have happened this morning, God's speaking to you saying, it's time for me to get out of this wilderness. Time to cross that Jordan. Talk to these guys. And other than that, I don't know where to go from here. Just to just to turn it over to you. If you if you're leaving, thanks for coming. I hope I gave you something interesting to think about. I hope God gave you something to change your life. And uh, just you're dismissed. Thank you. <laughs>